Good afternoon. Let me open my laptop here. So I have only 30 minutes, and while there are many things I could say on this topic, I had to keep it tight. Um, as Pastor David said, uh, I'm a homeschooling mom as well as the church administrator here. Uh, but I was raised in the public school system. So that's the perspective I come from, as having come out of the public schools and now raising my children uh, by homeschooling uh, for their education and seeing the difference. Um, I'll also say that my uh, maturity in my faith has gone right alongside with homeschooling my children. So as I homeschooled them and learned more, I realized how much I didn't know about anything coming out of the public schools. Okay, so I'll begin. Um, I know that many of you have already raised your children, and some of you have not had children, so you might think that this topic isn't as relevant to you um, as some of the other topics that we're discussing today. But I expect that most of you have also been raised in the public school system, just like I was. I'm going to refer to the public school system primarily as the government school system from here on out. So I'll say that most of you are the product of the system, just like I was. And uh, while you might not realize it, your children are also products of the system. And anybody that you might bring to Christ as an American is going to be a product of the system. So it's important to know how all the lies we've been taught have affected us as the church. To show how deeply indoctrination goes, I'm going to give you another statistic. And Steve gave some great ones, so I'm glad his didn't overlap with mine. Um, according to the Barna Research website, and this was taken from 2017, they show that only 17% of Christians who consider their faith important and attend church regularly actually have a Christian world, a biblical worldview. And the criteria that they use is so broad, it's shocking that only 17% of Christians believe these things. So how does this happen? I believe the root of the problem is in our education. So today I'm going to point out three lies that have been taught to us through the education system, and I'll contrast it with the biblical truth, and then I'll close with some thoughts on homeschooling. Now we do recognize that not everybody can homeschool, so Vince will be talking about um, what's going on in the school systems today and how you can respond. I will start with the lies, the first lie. Trust the experts. <laughs> Why is it that we offer our children up so willingly to be indoctrinated by people who don't love them, don't have a personal investment in them, and won't have to deal with any of the long-term consequences of their behavior? It's because the teachers, the bureaucrats deciding the, designing the curriculum, and running the schools are experts. And we ourselves have been trained to trust the experts without question. We can see this in many areas of our culture today, but today I'm only going to focus on the education system. When we were children, we went to school because the government said we had to, and our parents believed that the teachers were more qualified than they were. So then we send our children to school because that's what we did, and that's what you do with children. You send them during their most impressionable years to strangers for most of the day, during most of the year, for 13 years of their lives. We do this, and few of us question the practice. We accept the idea that what they are taught in school is what's best for them to know, and it will help them to get into a better college, 
which will help them to get a better job, which means more money, and of course, more money means a happier life. So even as Christians, we accept this relatively new cultural practice as if there's no other way, simply because some expert somewhere in the recent past said that this is what's best for our children. One of the silver linings that came from closing the schools over the last couple of years, as Pastor David was talking about, is that parents can see for themselves exactly what the so-called experts are teaching their children. And not only did they find the material itself egregious, but they found that some teachers and school administrators were actually using their, the authority granted by their expertise to position themselves between children and their parents. When you place your child into someone else's care, what you're actually doing is delegating your authority as a parent to that person. So consciously or not, children believe that the person in whose care they are left is worthy of the task. The child trusts the teachers, and over the years, the teachers train the child not to trust his parents. By nature of their expertise, teachers can position themselves as a greater authority than the parent. I don't mean to disparage teachers. I know that there are some wonderful, godly teachers. But the school system is a system, and systems have purpose. From the very outset of its implementation, the modern school system was designed to control the population, remove Christianity, and put a wedge between parents and their children, thereby shaping culture. I'm going to read you a quote from an article by the editors of The New Republic, which is a progressive publication written in 1915. And note that when you hear the word democracy used, they mean it in the modern progressive sense of the word, like we hear it used today. 20th century democracy believes that the community has certain positive ends to achieve. And if they are to be achieved, the community must control the education of the young. It believes that, believes that training in scientific habits of mind is fundamental to the process of democracy. It believes that freedom and tolerance mean the development of independent powers of judgment in the young, not the freedom of older people, the parents, to impose their dogmas on the young. Democracy claims no right to interfere with worship or opinion, but it does claim the right to develop in every child the capacity for testing its own convictions. It insists that the plasticity of the child shall not be artificially and prematurely hardened into a philosophy of life, but that experimental, naturalistic aptitudes shall constitute true education. Now that was over 100 years ago, but nothing has changed. Randy Weingarten, who's the president of the American Federation of Teachers, recommended an article from the Washington Post uh, last October 2021, and it's called Parents claim they have the right to shape their kids' school curriculum. They don't. So after mentioning the growing parents' rights movement in the article, it states, given this frenzy, one might reasonably conclude that radicals are out to curtail the established rights that Americans have had over the educational sphere. Yet what's actually radical here is the assertion of parental powers that have never previously existed. <laughs> This is not to say that parents should have no influence over how their children are taught, but common law and case law in the United States have long supported the idea that education should prepare young people to think for themselves, even if that runs counter to the wishes of parents. 
In the words of legal scholar Jeff Shulman, this effort may well divide child from parent, not because socialist educators want to indoctrinate children, but because learning to think for oneself is what children do. Later on, the article states, when do the interests of parents and children diverge? Generally, it occurs when a parent's desire to inculcate a particular worldview denies the child exposure to other ideas and values that an independent young person might wish to embrace or at least entertain. To turn over all decisions to parents, then, would risk inhibiting the ability of young people to think independently. So we'll go back to our statistic from Barna. 17% of church-going Christians have a biblical worldview. That leaves 83% of Christians who attend church regularly and believe church is important who do not have a Christian worldview. How do we get here? In these articles from 1915 and 2021, the experts running our schools have pushed for children to think for themselves. But as Christians, we are actually not free to think for ourselves. What we are free to do is think rightly. God has given us a standard to live by, and it is by that standard that we are to judge anyone claiming to be an expert. In Acts 10, verses 11 through 12, we read about the Bereans. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed. 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, test all things, hold fast to what is good. Or in Galatians 1.9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Blind faith in experts, even if the expert is our pastor, makes us vulnerable. In Rod Dreher's book, Live Not By Lies, which inspired this conference, Dreher says, a time of testing, even persecution is coming. Lukewarm or shallow Christians will not come through with their faith intact. We should see how many of the world's values have been absorbed into Christian life and practice then we must judge how the ways of the world and its demands conflict with what Christ requires of his disciples. Now, line number two. Sameness is good. Diversity is bad. In the culture today, we are always hearing about diversity. But in practice, we are taught from preschool that sameness is good and diversity is bad. Children are placed in classes with other children of the same age for at least 13 years. In schools, they're expected to sit down, line up, be quiet, study, and play at the same time and all together. They read the same books, listen to the same music, and dress the same. Fitting in is the priority. No one wants to stand out. Those who do are picked on, shamed, harassed, and made to feel foolish. And all of this we accept as normal. By the time a child gets to high school, whether it's in class discussion or in an essay, he knows that he shouldn't actually be using any critical thinking skills. He shouldn't ask any questions or challenge his teacher. What he should do, especially if he wants a good grade, is give the answer the teacher is looking for. 
In the last section, I read quotes to you stating that the advocates for progressive schools want to teach children to think for themselves. But that's another lie. Progressive teachers want children to think like they think. The purpose of our government school system has always been assimilation. Beginning in the mid-19th century, the government school system was a way of training the children of immigrants to be American, to be a people united under one language and one culture. Whether or not this was a good thing is beyond the scope of our talk today. But the point I'm making is that schools are doing what they have always done. They're assimilating children into the dominant culture. And the problem we have today is that the dominant culture is not only unchristian, it is anti-Christian. In his book, Family Driven Faith, after pointing out that 85% of American Christians send their children to government schools, Vodi Bakum sums up the problem perfectly when he says, we cannot continue to send our children to Caesar for their education and be surprised when they come home as Romans. So you'll hear more about this from Vince, uh, but he also states, more importantly, we cannot continue to use Caesar's methods in our Christian schools and expect a different outcome. Education is inseparable from discipleship. Then he makes reference to Luke uh, chapter 6, verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. So we'll have a little review of the lies so far. And then we'll look at how they have affected the church. So we are supposed to trust the experts who know better than we do so that our children will learn to think for themselves so that they will think just like everyone else. <laughs> okay, so now we move on. How has this affected the church? So what are some of the things that we as the greater church have assimilated? Steve mentioned some of them. Uh, the social justice movement and the ideas of equity. A sexual ethic that says there is no difference between men and women. The practice of organizing ourselves according to age. The idea that tolerance and being nice is the highest good. The fear of speaking out. The fear of standing out. Unlike the school system, the Bible teaches us to value true diversity. Because we are united as the body of Christ, we are free to be who we are created to be. I won't read the whole chapter, but I want to illustrate the point by reading a few of the highlights from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. For as the body is one and has many members, but all of the members of, of that one body, being many, are one body. So also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and all have been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Diversity is not about skin pigmentation, ethnicity, or socioeconomic class. It's about how each Christian fits into the body of Christ based on the gifts received by the Holy Spirit and the works that God has prepared for each of us to do. We don't lose our cultural identities, but who we are in Christ surpasses any identity that we might claim. 
And that's important because we are not called to be assimilated by the culture. We are called to change it by making disciples of all nations. If we expect to have anything to offer, there has to be a difference between life as a Christian and life as an unbeliever. But American Christians are not used to being in the minority. We're not used to being the persecuted culture. We've become weak and soft, so that when someone calls us a bad name or hints at a threat to our reputation, we revert to our school training. Don't stand out, don't cause any trouble, sit down and shut up. So what if we, instead of sending our children to Caesar, kept them home and taught them to love their heritage as Christians? What if, alongside their studies in British history, we also taught them about William Wilberforce, the Christian who fought and won to end the battle of slavery, <laughs> who fought and won the battle to end slavery in all the British colonies? If we taught them that we can study the sciences because God made an orderly universe and that their bodies, made male and female, give them distinct blessings and responsibilities? Would we remove for our children the stumbling blocks that many of us are still finding in our paths? I know that not all children come out of government school, the, the government school system assimilated into the culture of the world. And I know that there are some people who believe that their child will be the shining light to lead others to Jesus. I don't believe that this is impossible However, I do believe it's essentially sending an unarmed child to fight against battle-hardened warriors. One of my very favorite quotes on education comes from The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte. The main character, Helen, is answering the criticism of her neighbor for not sending her very young son away to boarding school. She says, I will lead him by the hand, Mr. Markham, till he has the strength to go alone and I will clear as many stones from his path as I can and teach him to avoid the rest or walk firmly over them, as you say. For when I have done my utmost in the way of clearance, there will still be plenty left to exercise all the agility, steadiness, and circumspection he will ever have. It is all very well to talk about noble resistance and trials of virtue, but for 50 or 500 men that have yielded to temptation, Show me one that has had virtue to resist. And why should I take it for granted that my son will be one in a thousand, and not rather prepare for the worst, and suppose he will be like the rest of mankind, unless I take care to prevent it? So the last lie. It comes summed up in many different phrases. Man is the measure of all things. Follow your heart. You can be anything if you set your mind to it, or live your truth, you do you. As human beings on planet Earth, we are finite creatures. We are limited by time and space, by gravity and weather. We are limited by our bodies, by way of our sex, male or female, and also in capability. As a person who is five foot two, I will never reach a shelf as high as my husband who is six foot four. There are also limitations and expectations put on us by our social identities. I'm a daughter, a wife, and a mother, and each of those roles makes certain demands on me. And in any other time, and in many other places around the world today, we just call this reality. These things are simply true. 
but our culture no longer accepts objective truth. It has come to such a point that we are expected to deny observable reality for the sake of someone else's fantasy. Anyone can identify as anything. Culturally speaking, we didn't just jump into this place. According to Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which Steve also mentioned and I highly recommend, he said it's been a steady jump, uh, a steady ramping up since the 1700s with Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He believed that man is born good and societal pressures are the problem. He's the first to articulate and popularize the ideas of self-love and the authentic self, putting personal perception as the basis for understanding what is good, rather than an objective morality coming from outside of the individual person. While most people in our culture have never heard of Rousseau, his ideas are mainstream. Our culture has reached a level of absurdity that I think is unprecedented where we're all supposed to go along with everyone else's truth, as if our varying truths don't conflict. But as I said, we've been building up to this for a long time, and government schools over the last century have been paving the way. From kindergarten, our children are taught, and this is supposed to be a good thing, that they can do or be anything, that boys are the same as girls, and that you should be nice and never hurt anyone's feelings by telling them that what they want or like or think is wrong. And now they are explicitly being taught that the things they imagine about themselves can become real. A few years ago, a, a local friend sent her child to one of the schools nearby for kindergarten. And within the first couple of weeks, the teacher, who was excited for her first year teaching, posted on social media that she would be reading a book about a little boy who wants to be a mermaid. The story was inspired by the author's trans friend and RuPaul's drag race. It ends with the boy holding his grandmother's hand, dressed as a mermaid, and marching in the Coney Island Mermaid Parade. Judging from the pictures posted online, the real parade appears to be filled with sexualized and grotesque costumes and is no place for any child. The message of the world is follow your heart. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? As Christians, we should certainly not be teaching our children to follow their hearts. Our hearts are tied to our desires and our emotions the embodiment of our flesh. And we know that our flesh is self-serving. We cannot trust it. If we build our lives on what the heart wants over what God says is right, even if it feels good, we end up believing that our life's purpose and our way to happiness is to chase after our own desires, disregarding biblical truth. The most harmful ideology perpetuated by the education system is the one surrounding human sexuality. No longer teaching the facts of reproduction, which was never the school's job anyway, but rooted in emotion, the teaching has even thrown off biology. I won't go into the details on that, but I will say that over the last decade or, decade or two, the schools have gone way beyond so-called health class and pride and representation are a part of every subject. The real tragedy, though, of focusing on, pers on personal desires 
is that there is no education in the truth of who we are made to be, specifically as men and women. The union of male and female has a distinct purpose, to make babies and form families. Families bring obligations and require sacrifice. Female bodies are made to carry and nurse children. Because male bodies don't have to bear the burden of caring for an infant, men have the responsibility of being providers and protectors. Female bodies also have a time limitation. Advanced maternal age is 35, after which time the likelihood of complications and miscarriage increases dramatically and fertility decreases. This is truth, proved in nature and thousands of years of human history, but it's not taught by the education system. This particular lie has been especially harmful to the church. Cultural norms have become Christian norms. Young men and women see marriage as something to do after they feel accomplished, as a capstone rather than a cornerstone. So instead of getting married at 21 or 22, starting from nothing and building a life together, young Christians wait until their late 20s or early 30s, after college and career, leaving a long time of temptation and a long time to develop habits that make it harder to adjust to life with a spouse. We have fewer children now too, though I'll concede that women are called to different family sizes as we are all built differently. But my argument is against the selfish reasons not to have children. Children are loud, expensive, time-consuming, and constant. They require us to make sacrifices to shift our focus outward. The Bible uses the language of the family to help us understand our relationship to God and to each other. God is our father. We are brothers and sisters. Family is the foundation of the church. Family is the example for the church. How can we know how to relate to each other as the family of God if we don't know how to be a family? Our system of education undermines the strength of the family first by taking children out of the home and into the care of a system that actively works to drive a wedge between parent and child. And then by teaching the child that having his own family would be oppressive. This is why I believe that the ideal setting for Christian education is in the home. Opportunities to teach come as a matter of life together. Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 through 7 states, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command to you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Teaching our children to live for the Lord is the aim of education. Math and science, history and literature are easy by comparison. Despite what the school officials might say, you don't need to be an expert to teach your children. As you teach, you learn alongside them. As I said, I had no idea how deficient my own education was in academics until I started homeschooling. The resources available to us today are such that anyone can be successful from an academic perspective. 
As parents, we have unknowingly abdicated our responsibility to steward the hearts of the eternal souls that have been placed into our care. We think too little of our duty. I will leave you with a quote from G.K. Chesterton on the importance of women in the home. How can it be a large career to tell other people's children about the rule of three and a small career to tell one's own children about the universe? How can it be broad to be the same thing to everyone and narrow to be everything to someone? No, a woman's function is laborious, but because it is gigantic, not because it is minute. <laughs>